let's uh, let's begin. Okay, so let's talk about Lagba Omer a little bit. Lagba Omer is a very interesting, we call it a minor holiday, so to speak. It's a very interesting one at that. So what are we celebrating? On Lagba Omer is the 33rd day of the Omer, which means that we count 49 days. From the 49 days, each day, each night, we're counting a day. When we get to the 33rd day, it's a celebration. If you go to Israel, if you go to Eretz Israel, you go to Meiron, I don't know what the exact number, but pre-COVID days, I think there were upwards of a half a million people going up to Meiron, where Reb Shivan Bar Yochai is buried. Now, Reb Shivan Bar Yochai takes center stage um, with, you know, Lagba uh, Oimer. That's one aspect. Another aspect is the fact that Rabbi Akiva, who was the Torah leader of the generation then, lost in this time period 24,000 students. And on Lagba Oimer, they stopped dying. And therefore, we have a celebration. That's another aspect of the celebration. Now, here's the problem. The problem is like this. Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. And if that was the, I'm sorry, if that was the, that was the students that Rabbi Akiva had, that's great. But if they, if I tell you that they, they stopped dying, you know why they stopped dying? They stopped dying because there were no more left to die. Ask the Prichadosh, who was one of the um, major commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, he says, I don't understand. Rabbi Akiva started with 24,000 students. He lost 24,000 students. So we make a big celebration. What are we celebrating? Oh, they stopped dying. Is that a reason to celebrate? You know why they stopped dying? Because there was no one left to die. So what is the, as the Prichadosh, what kind of celebration is this to say, we're going to celebrate because there was no, there was no more dying. No one else was dying. It doesn't make sense. Explains the Prichadosh or others who give this answer, a beautiful answer. The Gemara says when it's discussing that Rabbi Kiva had these 24,000 students who died, the Gemara says that afterwards Rabbi Akiva went down to the south and he started again with five new students. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Meir, etc. Five new students Rabbi Akiva had. And with those five students, Rabbi Akiva started again and taught Torah to Klal Yisrael. And it's from those five students that we have the Mishnah that we have the Taisefta, that we have the Sifra and the Sifri. Everything came from those five students. The reason why we're celebrating on Lagba Oimer is not because they stopped dying. We're celebrating the fact that Rabbi Akiva said, I lost 24,000 students. It's tragic. It's terrible. How could I move on forward? Says Rabbi Akiva, no, I'm going to start again. Because it says, Sheva Yipol Tzadik become a Tzadik will fall seven times. Vikam and he'll still get up. That's how he remains a Tzadik. That is what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the stopping of the death necessarily of all of the students because there was no one to die. What we're celebrating is Rabbi Akiva saying, I'm not giving up. I'm going to try again. My daughter is learning how to ride a bike. She's four and a half, whatever it is. And she's learning how to ride a bike. What happens when you learn how to ride a bike? You fall down. You get some scrapes and bruises. And every time she would fall down, I say, Toby, 
you're going to fall right down and you get right back up. And the etzem, and that really is the lesson that we're learning not only at four and a half years old, we're learning it at 99 and a half years old too. Because every single day, we're going to have something go, a challenge that we may fall in. Every single day, we're going to say something that we would rather have not said. Every single day, we're going to do something that we say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that exactly like that. But nonetheless, the lesson from Bibi Akiva and the celebration of Lagba Imer is, no matter what and how great the tragedy is, no matter how great the fall is, we get back up. That is our Masara, that's our chain, that's our tradition from Rabbi Akiva, and that's what we're celebrating. Now, why did Rabbi Akiva's students die? So the Gemara says, because they did not give honor one to each other. They didn't honor each other. Now, let's just go into this for a second. When we say, and we, if I would tell you, that Ruvain is not honoring Shimon. What would you say? You'd say, well, what do you mean he's not honoring? What's he doing? And it's probably something that we could see. Oh, you have to stop doing X, Y, and Z. But these are the students of Rabbi Akiva. Is it possible that they actually were dis, 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 disregarding or being mevaza and embarrassing their uh, uh, what's it called? Their their friends, the other yeshiva students. So the Mafarshim saying, and and more than that, according to some, Rabbi Akiva, who is well known for his rule, he said, love your fellow Jew like yourself. This is a primary rule from the Torah, and everything revolves around that. Is it possible that Rabbi Akiva students themselves? are going to slip in this exact area that Rabbi Akiva professed for everyone as this is, if you're going to do one thing, you got to focus on this and then everything else will come from it. How is it possible that in fact Rabbi Akiva students would fail in this area? So we have to realize that when we say that Rabbi Akiva students did not give honor one to the other, we don't mean that they said, eh, you don't know what you're talking about. The Gemara says they were They were a little bit a mashu of a mashu, a one milli, 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 milli something of amount of disrespect that Rabbi Akiva himself didn't see, that they themselves didn't notice. They thought when their friend would come in to learn, you know what they would do for their friends? They would stand up for each other because it's a big Tabal Chacham. But on a small level, to their level, there was something lacking. And the reason why it was specifically in this time period that they died is because what are we counting towards? We're counting towards Shavuos. If I want to be, accept the Torah to the proper level, I have to make sure that my interpersonal relationships are 100%, are there to the top. If there's something lacking in that area... I can't be worthy of accepting the Torah, not only accepting the Torah, but actually transmitting the Torah to the next generation. And it's because of that that Hashem said, now is the time period where they're going to get this consequence. Specifically because of that, that's why during this time period, we always work on we're always working on the interpersonal relationships that we have with our friends. You know, there was a... Um, 
Reb Chaim Oizer Grzynski was the chief rov of Vilna. I'm sure you heard his name from me in the past. He was the chief rov of Vilna, but he was also he was he was the the rov, the rabbi of the world, basically at the time. And in his later years, he printed one of his svarim called Sefer Achiyazer, which is a collection of letters, responsa halachic letters that he wrote. And Rav Shach, who was the Rosh Hashivah in Panovej, he passed away about 20 years ago, he asked Rav Chaim Loizer, why didn't you print any one, why don't you print any of your svarim? You printed one set of, of responsa, but you, you know, you have a lot more. And Rav Chaim Loizer said, he said, because as I was getting older, I realized that writing the svarim is great. But helping my fellow Jew is even greater. And I, as the Rav of Vilna, I have the, the potential, I have the ability, because of my position, to help so many Yidin, so many Jews in Vilna, in Lithuania, and across Europe. I need to spend my time doing that. Of course, if Chaim Meiser learned, of course, if Chaim Meiser wrote Torah Navel, that were, or whatever, however you pronounce it, Torah thoughts that were unbelievable, that were fantastic. But he said, I can't use my time to take care of that. However, now this is a very big however. You know, the Mishnah says in Pirkei Yavis, um, The world stands on three things. If I were to ask you, Stan, Arthur, Alan, or Vivian, or Fagy, or Steve, or Dan, or Linda, or Nissen, if I were to ask you after what I just said, which one would you say should be the first? Which of the pillars that hold up the world, which one should be first? You'd say chesed. You'd say beram l'chavera. You'd say looking out for your fellow Jew. But that's not the one that the Torah says, especially, you know what I just said, that you have to go through interpersonal relationships and working and perfecting that before we accept the Torah. So I would say first to chesed, Right? Gemilas chasadim, interpersonal, and then you get to Torah. But the Mishnah doesn't say that. The Mishnah says that it's supported by three things. Number one, Torah. Number two, Avoida, which is service of Hashem. And number three, Gemilas chasadim. And number three, chesed, interpersonal kindness. Now hold on one second. Which one should be first? Shouldn't chesed be first? The answer is... Chesed is first. But how do I know what is considered a chesed? How do I know what is considered a kindness? The only limit test, exactly, Linda, exactly. The only thing that can tell me what is considered a kindness, 100% objectively considered a kindness, is the Torah. And that's really, if you think about it, you know why we need the Torah to tell us what kindness is? Let me ask you a question. Or Dan, if you would have gone over to a Nazi guard in 1941 and said to him, you know, the Nazi, the, the two Germans are talking to each other. They have a neighbor who's a Jew. And one, you know, whatever, you know, give me some German name says to his other neighbor, could you do me a chesed or kindness? And could you kill that Jew? What would he have said? He said, of course, I love you dearly like a brother. I would do anything for you. Of course I would kill the Jew for you, correct then? Is that a chesed? 
Is that a kindness? Being polite. What defines etiquette? Of course, there are social norms. Of course, there are things that everyone does this. This is what we have to do. Fine. But that doesn't, that's not objective. That's subjective to the land that we're in. The Torah says this is considered a chesed. This is considered what's right. And that's why we have to have the Torah first. Listen to this mice of Rabbi Kiva Eger. Maybe I told this to you once. Rabbi Kiva Eger lived um, in the 1800s. Rabbi Kiva Eger, if you, if you ask any yeshiva guy like about who asks like major kashas, major questions on Talmud, that, that such bomb questions, or as they call it in yeshiva, Eisenakasha, which means an iron question. They said Rabbi Kveger is the one. Rabbi was head and shoulders above everyone of his generation and even generations before. Although Rabbi Kveger, if anyone knows, everyone saw a picture of him, he was extremely short. He was probably no more than five foot four, five foot two, maybe. Anyways, so um, probably five foot two. Yeah, because the Chavetz Chaim, because the Chavetz Chaim, I'll tell you, the Chavetz Chaim was four foot ten or four foot eleven. He was extremely, extremely short. Um, and um, anyway, so, so Rebbe Kiva Eger, one time, there was someone who came. Rebbe Kiva Eger had a get. He was learning late at night once. And the Nesivis, Rebbe Yaakov of Lisa, he was the Rav of Lisa, the Nesivis HaMishpat, he was visiting Rebbe Kiva Eger, and they were talking and learning. It was late at night. It was a cold winter night. And... Someone knocked on the door. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a traveler and it's cold outside. I'm freezing. My feet are frozen. I, need, I saw your light on. Can I come inside and warm up by the fire? So Eger, who is the equivalent of the, you know, I don't know, the Chavetz Chaim of his generation, right? Let's just say like that, even though it's the opposite. But anyways, Eger brings the fellow in. He says, of course, he helps the fellow sit down. He takes off his shoes, his boots. He takes off his socks. And he holds, he puts his feet situated near the fire. And then Rabbi Kiva Eger, with his holy hands, starts massaging the man's almost frostbitten legs. He started with the one leg and he's massaging it so the person doesn't get frostbitten completely. And he finishes one leg. And then Rabbi Kiva Eger says, the Lisa Rav, the Rav of Lisa is now honored to do the second leg. He's mochubim et He's honored to do the second leg now. Kveger wasn't joking. Kveger knew that it was a schus and a merit to be able to service a fellow Jew. In fact, someone like on that stature doesn't usually get a chance to do that. He has everyone else doing it for him. And he said, I'm giving you a schus. Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa, I love you dearly. I'm going to give you the opportunity for you now to rub this man's feet, to massage his legs so he doesn't get frostbitten. That's how we're supposed to look at a chesed. It's something that we jump at the opportunity. It's not something to say, oh, I have to help this guy out. I'll tell you, the MS, I, it has bothered me, and I don't mean to talk negatively, but it's something that I think we have to think about. You know, I was in Baltimore, and there was someone there who we saw that it was Yom Tif time. I think, I'm not sure if it was Pesach or Sukkis, and he had parked in front of his house, he had a, what, an RV, an RV, a nice mm. RV. And he was, he was not a wealthy person to have an RV that, you know, so we were talking. He said, oh, I rent this RV for Yom Tif. Every Yom Tif, my children come. We don't have enough room in the house. 
So I rent an RV for a week. I think you could do it from like, you know, there's like a website. You can rent it for a week. They bring it to you. And basically it turns into another two-bedroom apartment for his married children to come and live there for Yom Tif. So we were talking how much it costs. He said, I'll tell you the truth. It's not so cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than making a, uh, you know, to renovate the basement or making an extension. Why? He said, and I, I'm, I'm saying this just so that we can learn from this. He said, because not only do I have to factor in the cost of doing the, the uh, renovations, but I also have to factor in the cleaning lady costs because there's going to, since I have the guest rooms, we're always going to be asked to use it for guests to sleep in. And then every week I'm going to have to start cleaning it up. Now he was saying it, you know, a little bit half in jest. But ultimately, mm-hmm. that's not the way we have. We, we can't look at it that way. When we have a, when we, I remember when my wife and I, and I'm, I it, it's a, we're, 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 so blessed. We're so thankful that when we moved into town, we were able to find a house to buy that had a renovated basement. And during, now my wife has a play group down there. So it's a little more difficult. But we said for the first bunch of, we told, we were talking, talking to each other. We said, we have to earn this house. How do we earn the house? By doing chesed with it. By having people stay there. Yes, it's inconvenient. And yes, it's going to be. But you know what? We're the ones that are benefiting. We have to do the chesed because the chesed is something we have to be worthy of having that. Be worthy of that opportunity. You know, it says, we say every day, we say, we say in davening um, that Hashem should give us the opportunity. We ask Hashem, to give us opportunities because it says that you all have opportunities that come your way. The fact that you have opportunities coming your way, that means that Hashem holds of you. And Hashem says, you could do it. And I'm going to, I love you dearly. And you're such a good guy. I'm going to give you an, or gal, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do a chesed. It's, it's really Hashem giving us a, a stamp of approval every time we have. And the chesed could be, by the way, just holding open, I don't know about COVID-wise because you might be within six feet, but just holding open the door for the guy behind you coming into shul. That's considered a chesed. If you think to yourself, when, I, when I'm opening that door, I am now fulfilling the mitzvah of chesed. I told you Rabbi Yitzchak Kuczynski, I told you about Rabbi Yitzchak Kuczynski, who was my, my grandfather's cousin. His father was the mashkiach in Slabotka. His father was actually, there's a famous story of Rabbi Hanan Wasserman. You know this, uh, Dan. About Rabbi Hanan, you don't know this. <laughs> Rabbi Hanan Wasserman and Rabbi Avram Grzynski were together in Kovna in Slabotka in 1941, maybe, or whatever it is, in, in, in some point of the war. And the Nazis came and they were going to kill everyone in the 49th Fort, I think, or the 9th Fort? 9th Fort? The 9th Fort. So actually, before the before it happened, before they took everyone out, so Rav Hanan turned to Rav Ram Gajanski, who was the mashkiach in the yeshiva. He said, "You should give a shmuz, meaning you should give it a talk to inspire everyone to get killed al kiddush Hashem." So Rav Ram Gajanski said to Rav Hanan, "No, you should give a shir, a Talmudic, a lamdish shir, you know, a Talmudic shir about the topic." And they basically, they agreed that first Rav Hanan will give the Talmudic lecture 
And then Rav Ram Gurjensky will give the uh, Musser talk to inspire everyone. Ultimately, Rav Chanan, they were deciding who to take at that point, along with everyone to the ninth fort to shoot them. And they ended up taking Rav Chanan, Rav Chanan Wasserman. Um, he was a Rashivan Baranovich, and he was killed along with I don't know how many Yidden in a mass grave in uh, the ninth fort. Rav Ram Gurjensky, he was in the ghetto, and he only died later on. He was in the hospital there, and the Nazis burned down the hospital. That's how he died. There, hmm. There's a little bit of a miss. There was a yeah. That's how. We, that's what. That's what. That's how he died. So Rav Yitzchok Gurjensky, he was a young boy. He was a very skinny and thin boy, so he was able to hide in interesting places, including in a small cabinet. You know, like those small cabinets next to the oven? He stuck himself into there, and that was one of the places that he hid. But anyways, Rebizel Grzynski, um, so he was my mother's cousin. He, would, he, he was an unbelievable person. I told you what happened. He passed away at night. That night... His friend, who didn't know that he passed away, his name was Rabbi Gibraltar. Who they were in, they were in Europe together. He recently passed away, actually. But he told, he woke up the next morning. He told his son. He said, "I had a dream that my friend Yitzchok Grzynski was telling me. He came to me in a dream, and he said to me, 'Ich bin schon in Gan Eden. I'm already in Gan Eden.' And he hadn't known that Rabbi Yitzchok Grzynski passed away." So anyways, they called up, and yes, he had passed away. But Rebizel Grzynski, this is what my point was. Rebizel Grzynski, every single time he would do anything, his grandchildren said, he used to always say, we're doing this mitzvah now, and we're doing these five mitzvahs by paying. Let's say you go to the barber. Do you know this? If you go to the barber or the hairstylist, and you pay them, after you get the, the haircut, you're fulfilling a mitzvah of that you should pay a worker on the day that he gave you the services. So we don't think about it. But really, chesed is the same thing. And literally, Alan, I'm serious. When you open the door for the guy behind you in shul, you're being fulfilling a mitzvah like wearing tzitzis. Like making, like, like hearing shoifar. It's a mitzvah called it's it sounds overwhelming because it is, but the bottom line is that that's it. The world is filled with those things. Now another area I wanted to get to Rabshim Baruchai also, but we'll see what we could cover. Another area, the way to do Chesed is by being Dan Lekavsechus, which means to judge other people favorably. And I had a something happened to me; it was unbelievable. Listen to this. First of all, let's go back for a second. In last week's parsha, it says, "Bitzedek tishpoit amisecha." Bitzedek with justice, tishpoit amisecha. You shall judge your nation. Now, that's referring to a judge that they should judge, you know, with justice. But Rashi says that it's also referring to this concept of judging your friends favorably. Now, here's the question: What does the word tzedek mean? Tzedek means justice. Tzedek means the letter of the law, right? And what mitzvah are we referring to in this pasuk that we should judge favorably? 
Now, is judging favorably means I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. Giving the benefit of the doubt means you have to be very creative in explaining why someone did something. That's not called justice. That's called going above and beyond. So why does the Pasuk describe B'Tzedek Tishpat HaMisecha or the, the mitzvah of judging favorably with the words B'Tzedek Tishpat HaMisecha that with justice you shall judge your, your uh, fellow Jew? So the, the reason is like this. This word of Palm, who was the Roshim said, the halacha in Shulchan Aruch is that you're not allowed to um, exaggerate when giving a eulogy. You're not allowed to give a eulogy and you say the guy was the best guy ever. You're not allowed to lie. But the Taz, the Turei Zohav on the side, writes that you're allowed to exaggerate a little bit. Ask Rav Palm, I don't understand. Why are you not allowed to exaggerate? Because you're not allowed to lie. And it's not really good for the, for the mace, for the dead person. His neshama doesn't appreciate um, the exaggeration because then they say to him, why, why, didn't you, why weren't you like that? That's what they said about you. So why didn't you actually act like that? So ask Rav Palm, so why, how is it possible that in fact you're allowed to lie and exaggerate a little bit? Isn't that lying also? Says Rav Pan, the reason is because as much and as as much as it seems like it's an exaggeration, it's really not an exaggeration. The Taz is telling us we all naturally, as human beings, it's difficult, and sometimes we can be critical of someone or semi-critical of someone, and say, "Ah, they don't really mean to do this. They don't mean to really mean this so well." But the reality is that they do mean well. And even if they have ulterior motives, there is the aspect of meaning well. They really do mean well. And therefore, you're allowed to exaggerate. That's why it says, with justice, because the truth of the matter is, that is the justice. Really, judging favorably is not going above and beyond all the time. It's really just thinking positively about the other person. Listen to this Dunlikov's story that happened. I'm telling you, if this could happen, anything could happen. <laughs> My, um, my, I, 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 I was in shul and I needed to get a hold of my son. It was, you know, my wife was still sleeping. The kids were playing, whatever. I called up. I called once and the phone gets picked up. And I hear my kids talking to each other. Say, hello, 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 hello. Nothing. I hang up. I try again. Again, the phone gets picked up. Hello. I don't hear them. I mean, I, I don't hear them saying talking to me. I hear them talking to each other. Again, I call. This time I don't get through at all. The fourth time I call again. And again, the phone gets picked up. And I hear my kids talking. And I'm like, hello. You can't just pick up the phone. That's, that's not covered. That's not, you can't do it to anyone. Certainly not your father, right? How would you feel? You have your kid who, uh, you know, Kananahara, he's an active kid and sometimes can maybe go crossing the line. What do you think? Do you think that that was, let's say, appropriate? Or how would you deal with it? So when my son came to shul later, I said to him, I said, did you answer the phone? He didn't really understand. He thought I was asking, in hindsight, he thought I was asking, did you hear the phone ringing? He said, yeah. I said, what kind of business is that? 
Anyways, you ready? I don't know what the shot is. The phone, and I and it happened when I was home, and I realized what happened. I said, Shalom Adav, is that what happened? He said, yeah. The phone picks up on its own. Whoa. Literally, if you call my house, I don't know if it's still doing it. If you call my house, the phone rings two, three times, and my wife said she was there in the kitchen. All of a sudden, she heard someone talking to her from the phone. It's like, I didn't answer any phones. The phone gets picked up by itself. So either they didn't notice the phone ringing or it got picked up so quickly. Right now, now between me and you, come on. If I were to tell you, if that happened, if you came over to me in shul and said, Yaakov, your son didn't pick up the phone and just let it, you know, leave it hanging. If picked up by itself, I would have said, thank you so much. I appreciate your thinking very, very out of the box <coughs> and creatively to figure out a way to be done the cops. But that's not what happened, right? Come on. And that's what happened. That's what happened. I'll tell you, someone just told me on Shabbos that when we're supposed to be Dalakavskos and judge favorably, we're not merely supposed to say, I'm sure something happened. I'm sure there was a good reason. Hashem gave us a crooked mind. Mind? Why did Hashem give us a crooked mind? Why did Hashem make us be able to think? Why, why are there people that are that 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 are literally so creative? They're too creative for them for their own good. You know why? So that we could be creative and come up with stories to judge our friends favorably. That's why, I forget who says that, but one of the early commentators, I believe, says that. We have a crooked mind to be able to be done the kaskos to judge favorably. That is, that is, uh, that's a real, that's a real, that's the real deal of, because um, I'll tell you the MS. It says in the pasuk. It says in the um, it says in the Gemara that who, whoever judges his friends favorably, um, Hashem will, so to speak, judge him favorably. So the question is, what does that mean? I could judge you favorably, and you could judge me favorably because we don't know the whole story, but Hashem knows the whole story. So what does it mean that Hashem judges us favorably? He knows why we did something. You ready for this answer? It's gonna knock your socks off. <laughs> If you're not wearing them, put them on so it gets knocked off. <laughs> says, says the says the Baal When we go up after 120 and we're judged, do you know who really is the judge for us? Us. Exactly. We are our own judge. Hashem presents a case in front of us. An objective case, nothing to do with us. And Hashem says, you tell me what happened. If we're people who accustom ourselves to love our fellow Jew, to listen and say, you know what, I'm sure they mean well, and to actually come up with creative things, you know what? Hashem will judge ourselves unknowingly, so to speak, in that positive way. And that's what it means that Hashem judges us favorably, that Hashem is making sure that we will come out with the right sock, not because he's going to change the story, but because we are going to paskin and decide for ourselves what our fate will be. Okay, we'll hold it over here. Thank you for joining us.